Class number 37 of 45. Um, so we have only about two months left. Um, I'm sure we'll remind you again later in the second, but next week, this may be better or worse for you, we'll be meeting on Monday instead of Tuesday. So sorry for that little switch. We don't want to miss a week, but just a little scheduling conflict. So next Monday instead of Tuesday, we hope you'll join us for that. And with that, with John Rawls, he's 2002, feels like a lifetime ago, and yet that's so recent, um, when he passed away. Um, let's jump into a poll question about justice. Uh, we started talking about justice last week. So uh, this is going to be a heavy justice session. On redistribution, of course, there ought to be 20 options here, but only giving you two. What is most fair is that people should work hard and get the things they need based on the working hard. Option two, what is most fair is that the uneven playing field is evened out through government policy. Okay, should we redistribute resources? Um, option one, what's most fair is people should work hard and get the stuff they need based on working hard. Option two, what's most fair is that there's an un that the uneven playing field is evened out through government policy. Okay, 29% think that people should work hard and get what they, based on what they work. Others think there's an uneven playing field and government should intervene to kind of balance it out a little bit. Okay, very interesting. So friends, let's let's launch in. This is a little bit of a long-winded intro, um, but I will look for, I'll go fast to try to get us to a conversation. <clears throat> Whom do you feel most obligated to help? Most obligated to help yourself, your family, members of your religious community, your own country, everyone in the world? After the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima, John Rawls resigned from the U.S. Army and entered the world of philosophy. Do people say Hiroshima or Hiroshima? I, I, I've heard both. Anyways, in which he'd focus. Actually, Ed, you, you, you could be the one to advise us on that, on the proper pronunciation. Um, in which he'd focus on politics and ethics. Rawls met Isaiah Berlin while studying at Oxford and went on to become a Harvard professor and teach Thomas Nagel and Martha Nussbaum, among many other prominent philosophers. 
One of Rawls' most important books is called A Theory of Justice, not a, a good bedtime read, unless you want to get through a paragraph and fall asleep. Uh, it is very interesting, but it's thick. <laughs> Published in 1971. I know nobody here was alive back then. The work answers questions of distributive justice, of how we might distribute resources in the world in an equitable manner. As we saw in the thought of Isaiah Berlin, Rawls recognized the competing values of equality and freedom, right? Those are competing values in distributive justice. Though we can try to distribute resources to everyone equally, it will always be done at the expense of people having the freedom to choose what they want to do with their own resources. So too, in a society that gives everyone the freedom to work for and buy what they want, there are in inevitably poor people who suffer. Classically, the conflict between freedom and equality is a complex one. If we want to ensure everyone has an equal share of material resources, the only way to do this is through central planning and distribution. As a result, one doesn't get to do whatever one wants. Rather, you have to do what the system requires in order to ensure that everyone can be equal. The more freedom granted to the individual, the more they get to choose how they want to be in the world. Freedom inevitably leads to inequality because it allows for there to be an unequal distribution of power and resources. For example, freedom means we don't put a limit on how much money billionaires can make. So think about China, think about Russia, other communist countries that are very uninterested in freedom, but claim to be very interested in equality. Right? Everyone should get the same stuff in the communist regime, but there's very little freedom that comes with that. And then think of a country like America, which is very unequal in resources, but claims to value freedom more heavily, that people should have more rights in a capitalist society to do what they want with their resources. Rawls' conclusion was that in reality, it's not a binary choice between freedom and equality. We shouldn't try to weaken one in service of the other. Rather, we should work for both to be robust. He referred to the integration of these values as justice as fairness. Fascinatingly, Rawls imagined starting a society all over again on a desert island. By imagining a perfect society, we might be able to move the real one closer to the ideal. To better imagine a world that maximizes both freedom and equality, he offered a thought experiment that he called the original position. In this, he believed we should imagine a veil of ignorance. We should picture ourselves being completely blind to the race, gender, ability, and social class we'll be born into and create a world that we'd be happy to live in one that we think will be most fair for the average individual without overly compromising their freedom. We want a society that we'd say is fair without knowing anything about where we might end up in it. Rawls used this experiment to theorize the difference principle. He believed that given this veil of ignorance, not knowing where we ourselves would land, we would be motivated to limit inequality and improve the status of every person, especially those who are worse off. Rawls believed that the way to best achieve equality is to ignore social status. He followed in the tradition of Hobbes's social contract theory, insisting that we create a contract as a society and accept the rules together because it's beneficial for all and not just the elite. However, Rawls believed the social contract now needed an upgrade to address the factors that lead to social inequality. 
Rawls also advocates for civil disobedience as a response to society's inequality and injustice. In a, in a theory of justice, Rawls defines it as a public, nonviolent, conscientious, yet political act, contrary to law, usually done with the aim of bringing about a change in the law or policies of the government. <laughs> I was talking about civil disobedience with my boys as they were falling asleep last night. I really wanted them to sleep, but they were debating civil disobedience. And my, um, given that one of their many concerns in the world are cows who are cows who live in cages or live in boxes, um, my five-year-old argued as he was falling asleep that we should buy all the cows because if we buy all the cows, then they can't kill those cows. And my nine-year-old argued back that if we buy all those cows, then they're going to produce more cows. <laughs> so we're actually causing more harm. And then we talked about whether Abba. Uh, that's me, I'm Abba, should go in and steal the cows to save the, the cows' lives. And um, they both disagreed that me going to jail to steal the cows was, uh, they both agreed that me stealing the cows and going to jail would be a bad idea. <laughs> Although they didn't convince me yet. So anyways, I really wanted them to sleep, but that's, uh, um, I should write a book called Bedtime Debates. <laughs> anyways, Civil disobedience. They both agreed that would be right, even though we shouldn't do it. And given that it was MLK week, they've been thinking a lot about civil disobedience. In any case, um, if anyone remember in our series who who we kind of attributed to as the founder of it? No, it wasn't MLK and it, it wasn't Mel Nelson Mandela and it wasn't um, What was it? Thoreau. Yes, good. So Thoreau, who certainly inspires those movements later, who was one of our early thinkers. Of course, you can find earlier roots in the history of the world of people who think we should not obey unjust laws, but Thoreau really kind of developed the modern discourse to some degree. Anyways, thank you, Aglaia. Rawls's ideas are especially interesting to observe from a Jewish perspective. As Jewish law has traditionally distinguished between one's obligation to their fellow Jews and other human beings, it makes me ask the question, do we as Jews, those of us who identify as Jews, feel too obligated to our own people and not enough to the world? I think the wisdom of the Jewish tradition shows us that Jews' obligations operate on two different levels for good reasons. As Jews, we have the right, maybe even the obligation, to value the well-being of members of our own community, perhaps after our home, for we are not only a nation but a family. According to the Jewish tradition, it's unfeasible for every person to feel obligated to the entire world. Instead, we are part of concentric circles of, of people, starting with ourselves, perhaps, or God, and with our family, and then a slightly looser connection with our friends, our community. By community, we may mean Am Yisrael, we may mean our local synagogue, we may mean our local community, then to perhaps our state and our country. Only at the broadest reaches of our ethical imagination are most of us able to consider the needs of the whole world. Is that a cool picture? And perhaps this is good because of all of us being equal, we are best able to help those whom we know best. Of course, this is not at all to mitigate the importance of helping those with fewer resources globally. Though our primary obligation may be to those closest to us, living in a globalized world somewhat changes that equation. We may prioritize our fellow Jew but it would unethically be unethically atrocious if we refuse to extend our ethical efforts beyond this. Let me here distinguish between 
what we say in Tehillim, in Psalms, Ase Tov and Sur Meira. Ase Tov means go out and do good. Sur Meira means stop doing bad. I think we can agree stop doing bad should apply to all people equally. But Ase Tov, going out to proactively do, do good, we have liber we have some freedom in who we want to choose, right? I can't say I'm going to do less bad to this group than that group. We shouldn't do bad to anyone. But doing good, we should be okay with, with room. I'm very comfortable with a black woman lesbian saying, I feel I want to most help black women lesbians. Or if there's a um, a Muslim man in poverty who says, I want to help other Muslim men in poverty. Beautiful, right? Or if there's a Jew who says, I want to make Israel my primary place. I want to make a difference. We should not push back against people who have, um, you know, priorities based on their own ethnic or other forms of identity uh, affiliations. Um, assuming they want to help all people, they just primarily want to help people like them. Um, I, you know, we ought to see no problem with that. Where there's a problem is where, where we, people think there's less of a problem doing wrong to one population than another. Um, in any case, that'll be a, a, an interesting debate if you disagree with me at all. Um, and so we see there's nothing inherently wrong with choosing to be charitable to Jewish causes. Other groups are not squeamish about this. Jews are particularly squeamish about this. Ugh. If I'm a Jew and I help a lot of Jews, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm I'm too parochial by being a Jew helping Jews. But other groups don't seem to have as much of a problem, you know, being parochial. Um, and so we should get a little less uncomfortable. But I know I were uncomfortable because one of the top 10 historical forms of anti-Semitism has uh, throughout throughout the eras has been that Jews only help Jews, right? Uh, Anti-Semites have always argued that. And so there's a whole long Talmudic discourse about why we should help non-Jews, not only because their lives matter, of course, primarily, but secondarily, because we need to combat the form of anti-Semitism that says Jews only care about Jews, right? But um, who would accuse a woman of, you know, being immoral for wanting to help other women, right? And who would accuse a, um, you know, a Chinese person, Chinese American, for being immoral for wanting to, you know, support their local Chinese American community? I mean, it's, it's absurd. Um, or immigrants who want to help other immigrants. In any case, just as there would be something intuitively wrong with helping a stranger before your parent, it's the same within our communities. We help our community before we help strangers. This makes sense to me, to me at least. That said, we cannot stand for a world that doesn't strive for a certain amount of equality among all people. I think the dynamic here is well illustrated by the organization Hayes. Hayes was originally called the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society and did the work of resettling Jews. Once Jewish refugees became a comparatively much smaller problem, Hayes reoriented itself toward helping refugees all over the world. We learned that just as we advocated for Jewish refugees in World War II, we should advocate for others as well. We see that communal obligations can give us a pathway towards a universalistic cause. We can use the particular to realize the universalistic. Now, interesting, a contrast is, to this would be Hayes started out serving Jewish refugees and evolved to serving almost no Jewish refugees, um, whereas ADL was founded with, with the dual mandate. ADL was there to combat hate. And from the start, it meant, it meant anti-Semitism and racism and other forms of hate. Um, so some groups evolve as such. It's rare that it goes the opposite way, that a universalistic cause in its, in its orientation, moves towards particularism. Um, I can't think of any cases. Maybe some of y'all can. 
but it's very common that the op opposite happens, that one founded with a particularistic uh, mission expands more universalistic. One of the most prominent tensions within the Jewish community right now is that between the parochialists, those who want a tightly knit Jewish community that looks out for itself, and those who only want to look outward, who believe that advocating for any Jewish interest at all is backwards at best or wrong at worst. We see these fights in the insider baseball of the Jewish world all the time. Perhaps the most authentic Jewish view is to have a comfort with both, as is stressed throughout the tradition. The Talmud, the Talmud in Tractate Gittin explains that even though Jews are commanded to set food aside for poor members of the Jewish community, it must be available to Gentiles as well. Here's what we read in the Babylonian Talmud of Gittin. Gittin is the tractate that deals with divorce, but it's about much more than that as well. The Mishnah teaches, one does not protest against poor Gentiles who come to take gleanings, forgotten sheaves, and the produce in the corner of the field, which is given to the poor, the paya, the paya, and we learn biblically. Although they are, they are meant exclusively for the Jewish poor on account of the ways of peace, what's called darche shalom. So that's to say, friends, there are some forms of charity in the Jewish tradition, in the biblical tradition, which are meant for all people. There are other ones that are meant for Jews. However, the ones that are meant specifically for Jews, like Peya, we do not protest when Gentiles take from it <clears throat> because of the ways of peace. The ways of peace is interpreted to, of one of two ways. One way it's interpreted is to mean that Jews are not safe in the world, and if we were to protest, we would be unsafe. So let's foster peace. The other way is that peace itself is a value, and by peace, we mean equality of all people. The Talmud goes on to explain that just as we must feed Gentiles alongside Jews, we do for them other acts of charity and justice as well. It's recorded also in this place in the Talmud. One sustains poor Gentiles along with poor Jews, and one visits sick Gentiles along with sick Jews, and one buries dead Gentiles along with dead Jews. All this is done on account of the ways of peace, to foster peaceful relations between Jews and Gentiles. So anybody who goes to any, any rabbinical school that's worth anything, um, in the pastoral training, should teach that young rabbi that when they walk into a hospital room that has two beds in the same room, and they go to the bed of their congregant or their student to visit the Jew in that room, they should also stop at the other bed and talk to that person. That's not only true for human decency, that ought to be true for pastors, right? Um, who um, are, are making such a visit. Um, those of us who are making hospital visits as friends might think about that as well, although it's a little bit different, right? Um, um, or, you know, I mean, we can't ask this of doctors because they have tight schedules. They should go into the room and visit their patient. They don't need to stop at the other bed necessarily. Um, but um, if we're going to visit a friend and there happens to be someone, and even if, assuming there's not a curtain up of privacy, we, we one might stop at the other bed and just say hello at least, because it's not rare that one bed gets 20 visitors and the other bed has no visitors. And that is a very painful thing to experience um, in shared rooms. Now, you might say, how can we bury the Gentile dead along with the Jewish dead? Because we have very different mandates of burial. Judaism is pro-burial. Um, it's very popular 
among non in the non-Jewish world today to be anti-burial. Uh, cremation is is becoming much more appealing, as is other um, other uh, th these new conversations around green burials. Of course, there's people in the world who do embalmment, all kinds of practices. So why should we not be uncomfortable with that? <clears throat> because the Jewish tradition says burial is only a requirement for Jews. It's called kavura bakarka. Kavura bakarka means um, uh, burial in the ground. And uh, but kavura bakarka is not required for non-Jews, and so Jews should have no discomfort participating in other forms of um, of death practices for non-Jews. And so, for example, when I was uncomfortable with my Christian mother wanting cremation, um, but I became less uncomfortable knowing that while Jewish tradition mandates burial for Jews, it does not marry that, mandate that for non-Jews. And so I should honor my mother's wishes rather than my wishes. And so I participated, I don't want to say joyfully, but meaningfully in a process of cremation, which was very strange to be in a crematoria, uh, not just because of uh, Jewish tradition, but because of the history of crematoria in the Holocaust, of course, and the fact that they still call them crematoria. Um, anyways, naturally, we have we have to the greatest um, awareness of those in, in close, close proximity to us who are usually more like us. But as we interact with the broader world, we see that we're obligated to others precisely because even those who are different from us have needs that mirror our own. There shouldn't be a tension between tribalism and universalism because when understood correctly, the differences between ourselves and others are both artificial and useful. They're useful because they assign us a closer group of people to be connected to, but they're artificial in that we are ultimately not different from those outside of our own communities. Right? We think of ourselves as so different. What could a Catholic and a Buddhist possibly have in common? Right? What could a, a, a Hindu and a Christian possibly have to talk about? It's in But we have so much in common. It's in recognition of our oneness that should enable us to work to actualize Rawls' vision. Might we find that we care less about the struggles of an Iranian village because of the Ayatollahs that declare their desire to destroy Israel? It's easily for us to think of all the all Iranian people similarly because of the, under the, the corrupt and evil rule of Ayatollahs. But if we're opposed to the death penalty, are we just as opposed to it when it's given to someone who's harmed Jews? Would we feel the same about economic justice if we didn't know what kind of a household we would be born into? At the same time, while there needs to be some blindness as it relates to policy and belief, here we can't fully embrace naivete. For example, Jewish law prohibits selling weapons to someone who is known to be violent. Similarly, we can give tzedakah indiscriminately while taking measures to prevent fraud. The Torah demands that we integrate, excuse me, interrogate our biases by aspiring to procedural justice that treats others fairly and equally, regardless of what we may think of them. We read in the book of Deuteronomy, I sh um, you shall not be partial in judgment. Hear out low and high alike. Fear neither party, for judgment is God's. Don't favor the poor over the rich, and don't favor the rich over the poor. One might think, ah, we should give a, we should be more, we should give more of a benefit of doubt to the poor, because you know they can't really have as good of an attorney, or or we should give 
you know, a higher weight to the rich because they're more educated and maybe they can be more trusted because they understand the laws better. Right? Uh-uh. Torah comes and says, you can't have, be, have any, be partial in judgment. Achieving justice can often mean recognizing that we have biases and considering what we can do to combat them so as to ensure that the law is impartial and fair. A leading Harvard psychologist, Professor Peters, excuse me, Professor Steven Pinker, who rejects the notion that humans are born as blank slates, argues for how his biological view, his biological views align with Rawls's notion of justice. This is kind of an interesting passage. I'm sorry it's so long-winded, but I, 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 I was, I'm not smart enough to know how to, how to shorten it. So here's what, uh, what uh, Pinker says over here. Can one really reconcile biological differences with the concept of social justice? Absolutely. In his famous theory of justice, the philosopher John Rawls asks us to imagine a social contract drawn up by self-interested agents negotiating under a veil of ignorance, unaware of the talents or status they will inherit at birth, ghosts ignorant of the machines they will hunt. He argues that a just society is one that those disembodied souls would agree to be born into, knowing that they might be dealt a lousy social or genetic hand. If you agree that this is a reasonable conception of justice and that the agents would insist on a broad social safety net and redistributive taxation, short of eliminating incentives that make everyone better off, then you can justify com compensatory social policies, even if you think differences in social status are 100% genetic, right? He's heavy on, on genes, um, anti-blank slate. The policies would be quite literally a matter of justice not a consequence of the indistinguishability of the individuals. Indeed, the existence of innate differences in ability makes Rawls's conception of social justice especially acute and eternally relevant. If we were blank slates, and if society ever did eliminate discrimination, the poorest could be said to deserve their station because they must have chosen to do less with their standard issue talents. But if people differ in talents, people might find themselves in poverty in a non-prejudiced society, even if they applied themselves to the fullest. That is an injustice that a Rawlsian would argue ought to be rectified, and it would be overlooked if we didn't recognize that people differ in their abilities, right? So just to unpack that briefly, um, even if we were to create a society that had no biases and prejudices, right? Unlikely, but good luck, you know, we keep working for it. Even if that were to happen, people based on their genes will have different abilities, will have different talents, will have different capacities. And that is fundamentally unfair, that people are born um, from the start with unequal abilities. Forget even the fact that they're born into a rich home or poor home. And so he thinks Rawls's attempt to rectify that. Um, if, if we were born blank slaves, he said, oh, everybody's got a fair shot. But we're not born blank slaves, Peter, Stephen Pinker argues. All right, to conclude here, friends, one of the Jewish thinkers to grapple with Rawls was Rabbi Dr. Walter Wurzberger, he liked that Rawls combined the utilitarian and Kantian perspectives, right? We studied a lot of utilitarianism a few months ago. And of course, we studied Kant a few months ago. And those are at odds. That, But what Wurzberger is saying here to rectify those two camps is that every person is an end unto themselves, like, like the Kantian approach. And yet we must care about the consequences for the masses as well, like a utilitarian approach. Without Rawls, Wurzberger implies, every tribe just lives in its own ghetto, right? And so we have to take care of each other beyond our tribes. 
It's a wonderful thing for Jews to embrace Rawls's universalism, but we shouldn't ignore the fact that we often need particularistic communities. Ah, I, I was there at that. Particularistic communities to achieve it. Ideally, we can learn to be a tribe without ghetto walls. Okay, friends, the last thing I want to say before we open the conversation here is um, that many of us do um, exercises with teenagers who are thinking about issues of equality and equity for the first time. And one of them is actually based on Rawls. What Rawls's Veils, Veil of Ignorance um, uh, thought experiment suggests we do is an activity like this. Um, he thought of this before every teen youth organizer. <laughs> um, he says that we should um, um, uh, put a sign on every chair. And on every chair, there should be a sign saying, you're going to make $10,000 a year. You're going to make $20,000 a year. You're going to make $50,000 a year. You're going to make $100,000 a year. You're going to make a million dollars a year. Whatever, you know, fill in the blank. And then everyone um, should wear a blindfold and play musical chairs and then sit down randomly in a chair. And you don't know if you're going to land in the chair where you make $10,000 a year or land in the chair where you make $500,000 a year. Um, but you should then construct the chairs so that participating in that game, you think it would be fair based on the randomness of life that you would end up in any one of those chairs. Um, because life is a lottery. You don't know where you're going to end up based on where you're born, when you're born, where you're going to exist. And Rawls suggests we should um, set up those chairs such that I would be happy participating in the lottery of life, ending up in any, any chair relatively randomly. Of course, life is not all random. We do have free will. We do make choices. We can work harder or less hard. We can make decisions in our life. In life. But there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't choose. And so um, we have to construct those chairs and such. Okay, friends, got to pause here after 33 minutes, which is supposed to be 20, 25 minutes. So I'm going to open up the conversation to you. Okay, Ed, you can hop in first and maybe Gary Gartz will help you. Yeah. Okay. And only because you asked Thank you. at okay. the start, okay. the proper pronunciation of Hiroshima, Hiroshima um, is where I'm going to start with because for me, um, it doesn't really matter. What matters is why you brought it up and you have a sensitivity towards, as opposed to somebody just blurting it out, but there's an underlying message that you, goes with it that you have in mind. And I think because of the topic, we're talking about the sort of justification, if you will, of the um, atomic bomb being dropped. If I were a citizen of that city, uh, I would have my own opinion about it. But I also might have, you know, well, we've got this real nice peace garden here. You can come, you know, the city is real nice. We've rebuilt this, you know, with American help. So it's the, the underlying message that I'm kind of interested in that isn't clear if the topic goes off on, did I get pronunciation right? Well, if, it's, if you're really interested in that, then, you know, I'll, and it's a distraction from, I think, the point being made here. So I see that type of deal whenever we get into a discussion about something that is fairly, you know, I guess, serious. 
that some people get distracted or even want to get us distracted from that from talking about that topic and they will pick out something like you know you're not pronouncing it right mm-hmm. um yeah it should be tomatoes mm-hmm. great and all great. of a sudden we're not into this deal mm-hmm. because i don't really want to talk about it or whatever mm-hmm. the reason is right. so when i look at the issue of justice it might be oh this is going to be not a, an easy topic to talk about if we're talking about killing people. If you're talking about what's a real nice city to go visit, then that's fine. But since this is justice, mm-hmm. then it comes down to saying, well, what is your definition of justice? Mm-hmm. What is your definition of freedom? What is your definition of equality? Mm-hmm. Because if we're ever going to come together to this sort of universal, I don't know, decision or control over it, uh, I think of what the Massar went through originally, saying that, yeah, uh, loving kindness, that's a, definitely a trait. What's the definition of loving kindness? Mm-hmm. We just take it for granted that, oh, well, everybody knows what that is. Mm-hmm. And yet when we go out to try to practice it, we mm-hmm. find that, oh, wait a minute, I don't really know what that is. I mean, it might be to me, but it might not be to the person that is receiving this from me. Great, so great. In, great. in all of this, it's just like, I need a definition of, you know, what's your intention? What, what are your thoughts about it? Because... Otherwise, I don't know how to proceed in this sort of justice, equality. Awesome, awesome, Ed. Thank you so much. My gosh, you raised 20 interesting things. I can't even begin to grapple with them. Maybe others will. But just to pick up on one or two things, um, you know, one is just how, you're right, how the conversations about language can be such a distraction from practicing values. Um, and we, we do this all the time. Now, I'm someone who's sensitive to language. I, I, I both am not a fan of political correct culture, and yet I also value political correct culture. I could, because I, I get that language matters. I, we shouldn't just say whatever we want or say things that hurt people. And yet I also think we can go too far where the language becomes primary as opposed to care, as opposed to acts of love, or even you know, the distraction against you know, um, the, you know, the atomic bomb issue by just pronunciations, like you're saying. And so I think that's exactly right. And so too, we can use all the right language for values. I stand for tikkun olam, or like you said, I stand for loving kindness, but have no idea what it means, have no idea of how to practice it. We just get caught up in the language. And um, unfortunately, much of identity is about having the lingo, right? Um, To be on the inside of a conversation, you have to know how to talk on the inside of the conversation. That's why people who convert to Judaism or um, or become more more engaged Jewishly are obsessed with language because they don't want to sound like an outsider. They want to say the right things to make it sound like they're an outsider. The right Hebrew pronunciation, the right insider lingo, um, and and um, and we we painstakingly uh, bend over backwards to use language that makes us insiders rather than outsiders. But to pick up on one of your uh, your your bigger points here. One of the ways we treat people unequally, which is both perhaps necessary and tragic, um, is um, through the prism of nation state. 
it, we all take for granted that the obligation of a, of a nation is to value its own citizens more than the citizens of other nations. If there's a war, a nation is to protect its citizens and potentially kill the citizens of other nations uh, in order to protect one's own. One values the life of opposing nations um, less than the lives of one's own uh, nation. Um, it'd almost be absurd to suggest the opposite. It doesn't mean that other life has no value, but going back to the atomic bomb, one could make a moral case, although people could disagree with it, that it's justifiable to kill people in masses if this will, will lead to much less, less deaths of people of our nation. That was part of the justification. This is a, nobody thinks thought it wasn't atrocious, like we're going to kill masses of people, but we're going to save masses of people by killing masses of people. And it's better we save masses of people on our side and kill masses of people on the other side. And and in 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 the just theories of war, this is constantly discussed. Now, people like John Lennon want to imagine want to imagine a world where there's no nations, and where there's no nations, there's no war. Because who would war be between if there's no nations? Um, but most of us understand that nations um, put checks on each other, and the United Nations is kind of a failed experiment. I mean, there's some good to the United Nations, but in many ways, a failed experiment of enabling us to transcend nationalism through some kind of unified collective. And so just like we wanna, we're willing to hurt other families if it means protecting my family, we're willing to hurt other nations, to protect other, other nations. And I think that World, two, World War II is, a, is an interesting experiment in that. And I think so too, um, this whole Israel-Gaza war, right? Israel's like, it's really tragic that lots of people are dying. But if this means we're gonna prevent another October 7th from happening, it's justifiable. And other people will be like, no, it's not justifiable for masses to die in a war. Are you sure? And I say, no, like actually a nation has an obligation to its citizens. And if this is what it takes to prevent October 7th from happening again, that's what you need to do, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that's, um, and so too, um, there's a great debate today, again, on the great war against terror. I, I don't want to say George Bush II was the founder of it, but let's say he's a great contributor to it. And what's argued in the great war against terror is that you can suspend human rights um, against people we call terrorists. And terrorists are people who lose their rights. And so you can do basically whatever you want to stop people we call terrorists. Now, progressive groups say that's fundamentally flawed because we've overreached on who's called a terrorist and you can never really suspend human rights. And those who argue for the great war against terror say that, yes, a war against a state has rules, but a war against terrorists doesn't have rules. You can do whatever you want because they broke the rules. And so you can have Guantanamo Bay and do whatever you want and this and that. And that's a, a fascinating debate that still exists today in um, in America and in other countries. Anyways, Gary Gartsman, we're going to we're going to shoot over to you if you want to jump in on anything. Uh, wow. Uh, I'd say. Uh couple things. First, uh, thanks to you and Ed. I think it's the first time I've thought of Hiroshima as a variant of the trolley problem. That's never really uh, crossed my mind before. Then uh, the how Rawls is handling his difference principle, meaning uh, what do we do? We're going to accept that there's unfairness, difference of abilities and resulting unfairness in society, and we should arrange society uh, to minimize those differences, to promote more justice, equal justice for all. 
and then the uh, Jewish philosophy of uh, Sedeker. How do we deal with that? Well, we don't, our approach in Judaism, Not we're not going to arrange society differently or imagine society differently. We're just going to do justice. We are going to see the injustices and ills and rectify them individually. And uh, I guess, again, the Ju difference in Judaism approach is that we value more of a community approach where Rawls and most of these philosophers seem to emphasize an individualistic approach or interpretation or quote unquote philosophy uh, of dealing with the issues. So awesome. Um, awesome, Gary. I'm so glad you went in that direction for a bunch of reasons. One, it gives me the chance to talk about a, a man that I suspect few have heard of here named Amitai Etzioni. If you Google Amitai Etzioni, he uh, was an Israeli who didn't really identify so much as that, although it's a deep part of who he was. Uh, and, because, and, and he was a professor in D.C. He passed away last year. I knew him before I became friends with his children, his, his son and his grandson, who was an intern of ours. Um, who live in Scottsdale, um, wonderful people. Um, but Amitai Etzioni was the founder of communitarianism. Communitarianism strikes to seek a balance between, um, let's call it socialism and libertarianism. A, a type of socialism that looks at the collective and a type of libertarian that, that looks at the individual. And what Etzioni wants to strike this interesting balance between these various ideas and what's interesting about what Gary shared here is that for 2,000 years, the Jews did not think about issues of equality through the prism of government because Jews didn't have a government. Jews were second-class citizens at best. Jews had their own kind of quasi-governing uh, capacities, but largely they were just kind of victimized by the Romans or the Babylonians or Christian or Muslim governments they lived under. Um, uh, without without full rights. And so they thought through the realm of tzedakah, right? Yes, the government is unfairly going to ask you for taxation. That's not going to benefit your community at all, just the empire. Um, but you don't really think about how you construct a just government because you're not a part of that project. Come Zionism, Zionism, let's bracket the idea of Zionism as a, uh, as a refuge for Jews. Zionism becomes a great launch into the world of Jewish political philosophy and Jewish economic theory. Because now we say, how do Jewish values play out when we have our own government, which is a state for Jews, but also a state for over a million Israeli Arabs? People, I mean, the world has no idea about that. They think Palestinians are just people in West Bank and Gaza. Have no idea that Palestinians are over a million people who are citizens of the state of Israel with full rights in the state. Is there discrimination against them? Of course, like in every society. But do they have, and that's a problem. But do they have full rights? Yes, um, to do whatever they want. In fact, even better than rights. They don't have to serve in the army like Israel, Israeli Jews do for three years, um, one might say. In fact, uh, Israeli Arabs have been judges that rule against. In fact, one of the prime ministers went to jail based on an Israeli Arab judge. It was just a remarkable thing that a country like that exists. In any case, um, um, now liberals, many liberals, want to suggest that... Um, Taxation should follow a liberal approach based on Jewish values, and conservatives want to, you know, argue the opposite. And um, it's very hard to make a Jewish case on taxation because that was such a foreign conversation, even though one could do it. 
Um, and Israel, of course, started socialist and today is very much capitalist. I mean, the kibbutz project, the Moshav projects basically failed. Um, and there's different views on that. But anyways, Gary Garthman, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I, I, I think you're largely right um, that um, that the Jewish approach, if I understood you correctly, uh, places a heavy emphasis on community rather just on individual and on society and the obligations for us to care for each other through the realms of justice of tzedakah rather than just through this collective enforcement. But Gary, let me let me circle back to you, make sure I caught anything you said uh, correctly. I think one can, and I know that it's like a silly game try to say that Judaism capitalistic or socialistic, but the fields at the, in the perimeter were left for the poor to come and gather for themselves. And, you know, when you realize like the Kohanim had a special function and so they were supported by the rest of the community because um, they didn't have their own land. So there was definitely an idea of community that one is responsible for the other and certainly like our laws of tzedakah and tzedakah is not really charity, right? There's tzedek in it. It's really justice. It's really doing the right thing. And, you know, they go from helping somebody learn to fish, the, the classic thing, as opposed to give the guy a fish. Um, I think it's very, very Jewish to help each other. The other thing I just wanted to say is there's some really simple things that government can insist on to make society more equitable. That includes pregnancy leave. It includes ramps for people with wheelchairs so they can get up. I remember I worked with one pharmacist who started who had a hearing disability and the boss got in a special phone with amplification so that he could work and hear. Um, so there's a lot that we can do to help people with disabilities uh, or different abilities, you know, the progressive way of saying it, to be able to function in society. So, you know, that's a really simple way of, of yeah. making things feel more equal or equitable. Awesome. awesome. Great, great points, Lauren. Thank you for that. And um, I think it is very interesting to think about some of those biblical paradigms and how they might like, extend to today. And just the one quick thing I'd say, because I want to bring more voices in, is... One of the complicated things with taxation is not only that we all generally have a sense that the money we've earned is ours, but but also that it, it is rare to never that one feels that the way the government uses their money 100% aligns with one's values. It, it, number one, it's common to think the government is wasteful or inefficient, um, but also it is common to believe that the government spends money on things that we think they should not. I suspect most of us support the idea of, of there being police departments, right? And there being fire stations and there being libraries and schools, some basic things. But some of us may agree with this war and disagree with that war. We may agree with forms of welfare and disagree with other forms of welfare. And so we know through our taxes, we are complicit. We are complicit to some degree in how the society operates and how it, how it spends its money on various issues. And so that's complicated. And that's one of the hard things about um, about being in a society. Yes, hi, Gary Friedlander. Good morning, uh, everyone. 
I, I just want to take off where Ed was talking about, uh, if, if I'm uh, correct, uh, what he was saying. And, and that is, you know, uh, justice, like so many things are in the eye of the beholder, just like the question you asked from the beginning, it was far right or far left, the government should be involved or the government should be involved. Uh, and and I, I, I and I think a lot of that has to do with where we come from and uh, our our thought. And the example that I use, we uh, we have women and men yelling and screaming about injustices of women, for example, in Afghanistan and in China and Iran under these uh, uh, Islamic rule countries. And then at the same time, they're willing to take rights away from women on the abortion issue. Uh, and 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 that is not necessarily what is societal justice. That's just their personal bias as what they see as justice based upon uh, their upbringing or their religious belief or their uh, or whatever. So I, I just I just wanted to throw that in. It kind of goes back to what the other Gary said: is uh, you know what's the definition? <laughs> what 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 does justice mean? Mm. You know. So I just right. want to throw that in. Okay, great. Justice is so complicated that we started talking about last week. Many of us have inconsistencies um, based upon what we want and what we believe and inconsistencies across different different paradigms. The other thing I would throw out, for example, um, is how justice is not about community. And um, it's about society. So let me give an example of what I mean there. Um, I, I often pray in synagogues where men and women are separated and men and women have different roles in those synagogues. Now, um, I, I, I would reject the idea that um, what we would think of as justice of men and women being equal in society um, is the same thing of how we do it in our communities. Just like in a family, if, 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 a, if a woman wants to be the one who cooks and the man wants to be the one who manages the finances or the opposite, I would not call that an injustice. The family can choose how they want to structure themselves. That's it, justice is about society. So, too, in a community, if uh, if there wants to be a community of women learners or male learners or structure themselves in a non-egalitarian fashion, that feels like a communal issue, not a justice issue. Um, whereas justice has to do with how we structure our society at large. Just like um, if a person on a personal level chooses to have an abortion or doesn't choose to have one, that wouldn't be a justice issue. That would be a moral issue. Right. But on society, our policies about about reproductive uh, freedom, uh, one way or the other, would be a justice issue. And so it's interesting to think about, like, the personal, the communal, the moral, and then how that extends differently to the realm of justice on a societal realm. And so, Gary, thanks for pushing us in that direction. Hi, I'm still here. <laughs> um, yes. Good morning. Um, it, it occurred to me during this talk that um, Jews make up a. I mean, this is my own personal opinion. I don't even know if it's true or not, but it just seems to me that Jews make up um, a huge percent based on what our actual numbers are of justice towards the other, meaning anybody, any, any organization, anything that's not Jewish as opposed to um, just dealing with Jews. I mean, yes, we're very much inv invested in, and involved in that too, but um, is that part of the philosophy here of, of roles that we should help everyone? Uh, in my younger, more um, 
belligerent kind of day. Um, and, and I can't say I've changed too much from that, but I used to think when my kids were in public school and they'd say, why don't you come and be, you know, PTA president or chairman of this? And, you know, and I'm saying, you know, my, there's plenty of people who can do those kinds of things. My job, I felt like, was to serve the Jewish community, you know, that's where I needed to put my energy because there were all, you know, 97% of the rest of the population could do all of these other things, you know, right. I mean, right. I'll, you know, my focus is on the Jewish community still, but I, you know, when, when I just remember feeling that way and then I just feel, I kind of feel, um, that that wasn't the right way to feel <laughs> after listening to your lecture today. So. Oh, good. Okay, Cheryl, thank you for that. Good. Uh, Sarah, let's hear from you, and then I'll respond to both at the end. My comments are just way off on the deep That's end okay. somewhere. That's okay. Go, go, in the, go in the deep end if you want. Well, yeah, because I it starts out with your voice. Oh. And <laughs> I found myself wondering um, why they were talking cows instead of trees. Ah. And I thought, it's too much of a why are we talking about clear-cutting trees mm. and yet needing hope for whatever? Um, so that's, I mean, I got lost early on as to what what is the, the greatest good? I mean, for me, tree canopy, capturing carbon, um, trying to make this more equitable in that respect. Mm -hmm. that ecological part of me just like went, ah. um, so it started there and then we got to experiment with the chairs and I I got really fascinated by that because I thought well okay so which chair do we take away do we take mm -hmm. away the highest or the lowest amount of money per annum mm -hmm. and then I thought and what happens when we take those blindfolds off and do the same experiment and what do these students do to get that highest paid job mm -hmm. do they throw each other out the window or whatever so that they can get that chair as opposed to the lowest salary um, and, right, and right. how do we make, you know, so how do we make, especially in this world that is so divided economically now, how do we create some parity? Right. Right. Whether oh. it's across, anyway, I'll just stop there. No, I'm so sorry, Sarah. I cut you off. Please keep going. Well, it, not only across uh, within a, a community like the U.S., but across nations. And I look at what's going on in Argentina frequently, and I am just awed by the fact that people are in really deep trouble because inflation is so high. Um, and inflation's high here, but nothing compared to Argentina or other parts of the world. So how do we make this a more equitable world, much less an equitable nation? Now I'll quit. 
Okay, uh, Sarah, so good. I wish we could. I wish. I wish we had more time. I'm sorry, my presentation went so long today. I want to talk about both y'all's comments. Yeah, on the one hand, on, I, we are a country of incentive. We we, we pride ourselves in being an um, incentive based country, and it makes sense. A, a person who only wants to work a job nine to five, like they shouldn't make the same as the person who's going to be the business owner and take financial risks and work late nights and work weekends. Right? People have to decide how hard they want to work and what the rewards they want to get. Or it doesn't seem fair for someone to receive unemployment when they're capable of working and just don't want to because they want the unemployment benefits or someone who takes a risk and 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 invests all their savings in starting a business making more than their workers makes a ton of sense you know so like we're a country of incentives not equality and yet we see that there's so many barriers to mobility and how do we how do we how do we balance that and like you said uh, i am not in the camp who wants to take away the richest people uh, you know, those who think there shouldn't be billionaires. I get I, I get the arguments. I'm not opposed to billionaires. I, I, I wish they'd be more charitable or more just in this way and that. But I do want to take away the lowest rung. People who are working as hard as they can and cannot live off what they're working, um, working for, like that feels fundamentally unfair. And um, but I get I, I, and I, so I, I think a lot of the anger towards billionaires is often misplaced, um, except with the billionaires who are immoral and irresponsible. And oftentimes that does happen. But I'd rather see us um, be more more creative um, at, and, and not to see billionaires as the problem. In any case, I love your point about the, uh, the ecological factors as well. And, and I'll bring that up in the debate tonight around trees. Um, just, I know we're over time, but Cheryl, quickly to go to your point here. It's funny, when I'm speaking to Orthodox crowds, I'm constantly pushing Orthodox crowds to care about non-Jews. Right? Why is all your money going to Orthodox community? Why? Why don't? Why are you not engaged with non-Orthodox non-Orthodox people or non-Jews? And you should care about them charitably. And when I'm speaking to non-Orthodox crowds, I'm often pushing. You really should care about Jews and take care of Jewish community, right? Because there's a strong discomfort to care for Jewish community. And the high, high majority of, of non-Orthodox um, Jewish philanthropy goes to hospitals and to museums and to great causes. But um, that's why non-Orthodox Jewish communities are dying. They're really closing shop. And Orthodox communities are, are, are really growing in numbers. Be, a big part of that is that. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I have no problem. And Rawls is not dealing with charity, even though we went there. He's dealing with taxation and redistributive justice. I, have, um, I hope I made clear that I have no problem maybe, uh, even support the idea of Jews supporting Jews. Um, my problem is people who go only one side. Jews who only support Jews, and um, Jews who only support non-Jews and the like, that I think that we need to figure out the right balance in there. So um, friends, I'm sorry to go over time. There's so much more to talk about. And just a reminder that next week, if you are able, we will be meeting at the same time, but on Monday instead of Tuesday. Have a beautiful day.